Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is The Norman Invasion Part 6, The First Siege of Dublin. This episode sees the first major attempt from within Gaelic Ireland to halt the Norman advance across the island when Rory O'Connor, the King of Connacht, mobilises an army to block Diarmuid MacMurrah and his Norman allies as they march on Dublin in early September 1170. However, as we shall see, stopping the Normans, who are buoyed on by their brutal victory at the Siege of Waterford, won't be easy. O'Connor, Ireland's most powerful king, grew more uneasy as the year 1170 progressed. He was no doubt ruining some fateful decisions he had made the previous year. In 1169, his bitter rival, Diarmuid Machmura, the King of Leinster, had brought hundreds of Norman mercenaries from Wales to fight for him, posing a threat to Rory's dominance in Ireland. Rory, as we saw in part four, had taken action. He invaded Leinster and trapped MacMurrah with his Normans in a heavily fortified camp. But instead of crushing them, Rory had made a deal. MacMurrah could remain in power, but was to bring no more mercenaries into Ireland, and those already here were to go home. However, by August 1170, it was obvious Rory had been tricked and lied to when well over a thousand more Normans had landed on the south coast, led by Strongbow and taken the port of Waterford in a bloody and brutal siege. This was in direct contravention of what MacMurrah had agreed to, and soon the situation began to escalate. Rory's worst fears began to materialise. Within a few days of the siege of Waterford, he received a plea for aid from his ally, the Herberno-Norse king of Dublin, Askel MacTurkle. Strongbow and MacMurrah were on the march. Having left Waterford, they were headed for the largest and most important town in Ireland, Dublin. This was disastrous. Rory could not allow them to take such an important settlement. 
His reaction would define his future. Rory was in a strong position and had several options. Firstly, he did have several hostages he had taken from Dearmouth McMurrah to bind the agreement of 1169. He had his son, his grandson and the son of Dearmouth's foster brother, all in captivity. No doubt Rory did consider bargaining their lives to try and force McMurrah to back down. However, using hostages was arguably a sign of weakness, as his enemies might perceive this as reticence to commit to open battle. It was increasingly obvious what Rory had to do. He needed to mobilise an army and march in Dublin to defend the town from the upcoming attack from McMurrah and Strongbow. So it was he sent out word calling all those who owed him allegiance to rally to his standard. His long-time ally, Tiernan O'Rourke, the King of Breffney, a man who with every fibre of his body hated Dearmouth MacMurrah, answered the call, as did Donica O'Carroll, a king from eastern Ulster. This impressive host then marched to Dublin to fight alongside the descendants of the Norsemen who had founded the town. Arriving well before MacMurrah and Strongbow, Rory had time to prepare his defences. Showing himself an astute tactician, he adopted what seemed an unusual strategy at first glance. He did not try and defend Dublin itself against MacMurrah, whose Norman allies were skilled in the arts of siege warfare. Instead, he would keep them far from the town and fight them on ground of his choosing that he had prepared well. Therefore, Rory moved his army around five miles to the west of Dublin, where the modern suburbs of Clondalkin are located. Here, he occupied a zone that was something of a natural bottleneck. Four miles north of Clondalkin lay the River Liffey, which MacMurrah and his Normans could not cross if they wanted to attack Dublin, while four miles to the south lay the harsh, inhospitable terrain of the Wicklow and Dublin mountains. Therefore, the approaching army had to pass somewhere in the eight kilometres of land between the mountains and the river, which Rory now occupied. Today, sprawling suburbs spread over this region, but in the medieval period, dense forests constricted movement to a limited number of paths. It was along these paths that Rory would make his stand, and his army began to dig in. As Rory was preparing his major defensive line, far to the south, Dearmouth MacMurrah can only have been growing quietly competent as he marched on Dublin. His allies, led by Strongbow, who is now actually Dearmouth's son-in-law after his marriage to his daughter Aoife, had stunned many in their conquest of Waterford within days of landing in Ireland. Now, with Dublin in their sights, a major coup was on the cards for Dearmouth. Dublin was increasingly the most important political centre in Ireland. If Rory O'Connor lost the allegiance of the town, his claim to being Ireland's most powerful king would be somewhat hollow, while Dearmid's star would rise. However, as he moved north, he received word that Rory O'Connor was fortifying the western approaches to the town. Even with his allies, MacMurrah could not be sure of victory. He knew only too well the power of Rory. He had suffered defeat at his hands on several occasions. But while Rory had illustrated great military skills in his choosing of the battle site, Dermot now outwitted him with cunning. Rory's battle plan was predicated on the assumption that Dermot and the Norman leader Strongbow would never try and bring an army through the Wicklow and Dublin mountains to the south of the town. 
but on hearing of Rory's preparations in the forests and paths to Dublin's west, Dermot did exactly this. He pushed through the mountains, which wouldn't have been an easy road to take. Most historians agree that prior to the Norman invasion, the Wicklow Mountains were sparsely populated, and as Dermot and Strongbow brought their army through these uplands, they would have encountered very few settlements. Hauling a baggage train along little used paths would have been very difficult, but when they descended into what was known as the Vale of Dublin, the lands to the south of the town, they had achieved what was a stunning feat. They had outflanked Rory's defensive line to their west. Rory was caught completely flat-footed, and before he could act, McMurrah and Strongbow were at the walls of Dublin, the very situation his strategy was designed to avoid. The Norman army now set about besieging Dublin, their second siege in less than a month. However, Dublin was a much bigger town than their previous conquest, Waterford, and a far more difficult proposition militarily. Its defences included over a kilometre of walls protected by a large ditch. Attack from the north was impossible as the River Liffey provided what was an impenetrable barrier, while to the southeast and east the River Poddle formed a similarly difficult approach. It was only from the west and the southwest that Dublin could be assaulted. As the Normans tightened their noose around the town, the population inside can only have been terrified. No doubt word had arrived from Waterford of the carnage the Normans had wrought on the city after they had breached the walls. That said, at this point, all was by no means lost. Indeed, Dermot McMurrah and Strongbow had placed themselves in a dangerous position between Rory's army at their defensive line to the west of Dublin and the town walls. If Rory was to launch an attack, he could easily trap Dermot between his advance and the walls of Dublin. However, what followed was a litany of mistakes and poor judgment, laced with its fair share of deceit, all factors which were becoming hallmarks of the Norman invasion. Although the sources are slightly confused and at times contradictory, it seems that initially Rory O'Connor tried to draw McMurrah and the Normans away from Dublin and into open combat. However, they had no interest in such a conflict. They were ensconced under the walls of the town, their eyes firmly on the prize at hand. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Yeah. 
Inside the beleaguered town of Dublin, the Hiberno Norris ruler, Asko MacTurkle, must have been very fearful. He was only too well aware of what that marauding army outside his walls had done in Waterford, and no doubt feared for his own life. In this increasingly tense situation, Askell opened negotiations with MacMurrah and the Normans through the auspices of the Archbishop of Dublin, Lawrence O'Toole. Now Lawrence, who will become a key figure in the coming podcasts, had actually been a captive of Dermot MacMurrah way back in the 1140s and had actually built up quite a good bond with the king, so he was the ideal man for such negotiations. While the horse trading went on back and forth, many in the town must have waited with bated breath, praying for a positive outcome. But there are also those not too happy with the situation, not least among them Rory O'Connor. Dearman's refusal to give battle and now the fact that his allies in Dublin were negotiating a potential surrender of the town he had come to defend seems to have infuriated him. Increasingly prone to rash decisions, he decided to withdraw completely from Dublin and return back west. This was unquestionably a mistake, as he was in effect handing over the fate of Ireland's most important town to his rival. But there were some reasons which may help explain the decision. The festival of Michaelmas, the traditional end of the harvest, was approaching. But the harvest of 1170 must have been in jeopardy, given there was large numbers of men mobilised in the army that was outside Dublin. So returning to their lands was no doubt on the minds of Rory's allies. However, more importantly, Warfare had broken out between the O'Briens in Munster and Rory's Kingdom of Connacht along his southern frontier and he felt the need to deal with this problem. While sending his fleet down the River Shannon in late 1170 easily dealt with the O'Briens, his withdrawal from Dublin nonetheless underlined that he had no understanding of the seriousness of the threat the Normans now posed. Regardless of the damage the O'Briens of Munster could inflict, it was far more in Rory's long-term interests to crush the Normans. It would seem, even after everything he had experienced since the first Normans had arrived in Ireland in 1167, Rory was still just seeing them as an extension of the ongoing interdynastic conflicts which had dominated Ireland for centuries. This was a grave mistake, as time would prove. The Normans were very, very different. Regardless of the reasons for his withdrawal, Rory's absence left Askel MacTurkle, the ruler of Dublin, alone with MacMurrah and the Normans at his gates. While this, you would imagine, weakened his negotiating position, Dermot MacMurrah now proved surprisingly magnanimous in the terms he offered to Askel. MacTurkle could remain as ruler of Dublin if he recognised Dermot as his overlord, but to bind the agreement he had to hand over 30 hostages. This really wasn't a major price to levy on Askell. Long gone were the days when Dublin could hope to be an independent power, not having to submit to somebody. Askell, no doubt, breathed a sigh of relief on hearing these terms and therefore agreed that on the following day he would submit and hand over the hostages. Until then, the siege would be maintained. When news of this imminent treaty reached the besieging camp, the terms were not to the liking of many of the Normans. While they had come to Ireland as mercenaries to serve Dermot MacMurrah, we have already seen in previous shows that they were increasingly looking for conquests of their own. Leaders like Strongbow and Robert Fitzstevens were effectively renegades when they had come to Ireland and had no homes to return to in Wales, while other leaders 
like a man who's about to enter our story, Milo de Cogan, were the younger sons in their families. They had little to return to either, as their older brothers had inherited their family lands and titles. Men like this were no doubt not too keen to see a negotiated surrender in Dublin that left the status quo led by Askel MacTurkle in power. They wanted to conquer the city and its wealth. It was one of the biggest prizes up for grabs in Ireland. But once Askel MacTurkle submitted to Dearmouth, he would be an ally and the prospect of a Norman conquest of the town would vanish. This was something at least two of the leaders, Milo de Cogan and Raymond de Gros, were not going to allow happen and they now planned to take decisive action to stop their desired prize slipping from their grasp. Milo de Cogan had led several hundred Normans in the advance on Dublin and was camped closest to the walls during the siege. When he heard the terms of the treaty, he was infuriated and along with the man who had been the commander of the siege of Waterford, Raymond de Gros, he decided he would stop Dublin being handed over peacefully. Aided by the element of surprise, they launched an attack on Dublin, storming the town's walls and easily breaking in. No doubt in Dublin, relief had swept over the population when they had heard of the agreement between MacTurkle and MacMurrah, so they were in no position to put up a staunch resistance. Chaos reigned and a bloody slaughter now began. In this mayhem, a defence was impossible and Askel MacTurkle, along with other leading Hiberno-Norse figures in the town, abandoned Dublin, which had been founded by their forefathers over three centuries earlier. Fleeing down the narrow streets, they made their way to the River Liffey on the northern edge of the town. There, Dublin's fleet, which over the centuries had been used for warfare and trade alike, was now a last line of defence. As the howls and shrieks of violence and Normans storming into the town echoed through the streets, which rose above them on the riverside, Askel MacTurkle no doubt cursed MacMurrah and his treacherous allies. Boarding the longships, they slipped out into Dublin Bay and headed north to the Kingdom of the Isles west of Scotland, where they found refuge among the Norse who had settled there. While Askel MacTurkle had lost control of Dublin, he was by no means going to give up the fight. He would return. When calm settled over Dublin and the dead were buried, there was no escaping the magnitude of the events that had just occurred. After the assault on the town, Dublin was, in accordance with the laws of war, placed in the hands of Milo de Cogan, the man who had led the assault. He, however, handed the town to Strongbow, his lord, and slowly but surely, the Norman desire for independent conquest was being unmasked. Only a day previously, Dermot MacMurrah had been negotiating the surrender of Dublin to him personally but now the Norms had effectively stolen the town from him. While Dermot had been totally unaware that the Normans were going to do this, I find it hard to believe that the Norman leader, Strongbow, did not have a hand in it somewhere. Now I should say all historical sources deny his involvement, but given his close confident Raymond de Gros participated and then Milo de Cogan handed the town to him, it's hard to believe he wasn't pulling the strings from the background. One way or another, it was clear the supposed mercenaries were becoming conquerors in their own right. By the end of September 1170, Robert Fitzstevens and Morris Fitzgerald were in control of Waterford. Herbie de Montmorency, Strongbow's uncle, had been given a strip of land along the south coast and Strongbow himself now controlled Dublin and Waterford. That said, at this point, it was still not clear 
who is really dictating the course of the events, Diarmid or his son-in-law Strongbow. While the Normans were taking what they wanted, Diarmid was still powerful enough to dictate the next move after the Siege of Dublin, when he led his Norman allies into an attack on a region he had long coveted, Meath. In part one of this series, we saw how the Kingdom of Meath to the north of Dublin had been imploding for decades, and by the mid-12th century, it was the source of major conflict in Ireland, as surrounding kings sought to dominate the ailing kingdom. This had led to one of the bitterest feuds in Irish history, between Dermot MacMurrah on one hand, and the staunch ally of Rory O'Connor, the one-eyed king of Breffney, Tiernan O'Rourke, on the other. The feud seems to have originated from an incident in 1152, when Dermot had eloped with Tiernan's wife. In the following decade or so, tensions arising from this were fuelled by warfare as the two battled to control Meath, until 1166, when Tiernan seemed to emerge victorious, as he had been instrumental in driving Dermot from Ireland. After this, Rory O'Connor had resettled Meath, the source of so much instability, taking a large portion for himself while splitting the rest between Tiernan and the Omeyashochnal dynasty, who were the traditional rulers of Meath. Now, this dynasty were not a threat to anyone, as they had been ravaged by interminable family feuds. However, when an Omeyashochnal king of Rory's choosing was assassinated by his own nephew, of all people, in 1170, Diarmid seized on this as a chance to intervene, and this was when he led the Normans into Meath. While it had political advantages, no doubt Diarmid was happy to use this chance to attack the lands of Tiernan O'Rourke as well. According to the Norman chronicler Gerald of Wales, the whole of Meath had been ravaged by frequent raids, slaughter and burning. This soon had the desired effect and the people of Meath abandoned Tiernan O'Rourke and handed over hostages to Diarmid MacMurrah. However, in changing sides, the people of Meath were just attacked by a different enemy. It didn't save them. They were just a powerless victim of the chaos sweeping Ireland. Tiernan O'Rourke had already taken hostages from them to ensure their loyalty and now these hostages paid the price for the switch in allegiance. O'Rourke, a man not known for his compassion, had the captives executed. Brutal and tragic as it may seem, this was only the first of a series of lessons in loyalty meted out in 1170. In the weeks following this, Rory O'Connor decided he would use the hostages he held as a final attempt to halt Diarmid MacMurrah's expansion. He sent a message to Diarmid which said, according to Gerald of Wales, Contrary to the conditions of our treaty, you have invited into this island a large number of foreigners. Yet we put up with this with good grace while you confined yourself to the province of Leinster. But now, since you are mindful of your oath and without feelings of pity for the hostages you have given and arrogantly trespassed beyond the stipulated limits and your ancestral boundaries, you must either refrain the furries of your foreign troops for the future or else we will send you, without fail, the severed head of your son. The treaty Rory was referencing was the agreement he had made with MacMurrah in 1169. Several hostages, including Conor MacMurrah, the man most likely to succeed Diarmid, were taken as part of this. However, Rory O'Connor's threat, unsurprisingly, was met with rejection. Diarmid can only have known that his son's life was forfeit the moment Strongbow landed in Ireland 
with a thousand more Norman mercenaries. The rejection left Rory O'Connor with little choice. He had to act and send out a strong message. And so Conor McMurrah, Dermot's eldest son, was executed along with Dermot's grandson and the son of his foster brother. While this simply upped the stakes on both sides, it had major implications for the Normans and spelled a dark future for the Kingdom of Leinster. Conor McMurrah had been Dermot's most likely heir. While there was another son, Donal, he was the son of a concubine, not Dermot's wife, and was viewed as illegitimate in some quarters, something that the Normans would be able to use to undermine his claim when Dermot died. However, in 1170, Conor McMurrah's execution brought to an end what had been a fateful year in Irish history. Dermot and his Norman allies withdrew to winter quarters across Leinster, while in the west, Rory O'Connor tended to his wounded pride. He was unquestionably losing the war, but that said, he still had his army intact, and he now knew, without question, he had to use it. While in 1170 he had stood off his enemy, in 1171 he would bring the war to the Normans. And even as winter weather slowed down the rhythms of medieval life, in late 1170 and early 1171, he was preparing for the upcoming conflict. Messengers were being sent from Connacht across Ireland, and indeed even further afield, to men like Askel MacTurkle in the Kingdom of the Isles in Western Scotland. A day of reckoning for the Normans was coming. Tune in in two weeks' time to hear about this fascinating day of reckoning the second siege of Dublin in the summer of 1171. Don't forget to let me know what you think of this series on the Norman invasion and how it's progressing. Contact me at Irish History on Twitter, Irish History Podcast on Facebook, or simply in an email to history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Until next time, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 